Wishes for Starlight by Linda J. Bettenay The best friend is the man who, in wishing me well, wishes it for my sake. Aristotle, 1168 B.C. Synopsis How does a deaf-orphaned Noongar boy survive during the implementation of the 1905 Aborigines Act? By having friends. Starlight is born in 1889 in the thriving timber town of Canning Mills. He is discovered in a chicken coop living with dogs. The three white children who find him are remarkable. Headstrong Mary, who was born into a dysfunctional family, the Italian immigrant Marco, and fun-loving Arthur. Gradually, change arrives in their insulated lives. The friends confront reality. Will their actions be enough to save those they love from harm? Set largely in Western Australia, Wishes for Starlight is a novel where friendship and loyalty are pitted against prejudice and disadvantage. It is a story about relationships, resilience, and what equality and freedom really mean. About the author. Linda J. Bettenay has now published two books in her Secrets series, fictional novels set in Western Australia. Linda was born in Rollystone into a pioneering orcharding family who have farmed the land since 1901 and lived in the area since 1895. Linda's current occupation is editor of a community magazine, the Rollystone Courier. This monthly publication has existed in Rollystone since 1977 and, along with husband Mike, has owned and operated this business since January 2008. This is a labour of love, providing a much-loved magazine for this delightful rural community. Previously, Linda was in education and spent over 30 years as a teacher and a principal in schools across regional Western Australia. Linda and Mike have two sons, Joe and Brett, two daughters-in-law, Beck and Beth, and three very cherished grandchildren, Lee, Violet and Mirabelle. Linda's stimulus to write her first novel, Secrets Mother's Keep, came from the discovery of an amazing true story from her husband's family's past. This story was kept secret since 1928 and was only recently uncovered. Her second novel, based on her father's stories, Wishes for Starlight, is set largely in the Perth Hills area, a location Linda is very passionate about. These form part of Linda's Secret series, fictionalised stories based in the rich history of Western Australia. Dedication for my father, Vern Bettenay, grandfather, Arthur Bettenay, and great-grandfather, Joseph Bettenay, for their fabulous stories and their hard work in building this state, and for everyone who lives between two worlds. Narrator's note. Below the dedication is a photograph of Timberfellers Below a Tree, with the title, Timberfellers at Kenning Mills, photo from the Lionel White Collection, circa 1895. End narrator's note. Arthur's Gift to Mary Canning Mills, Western Australia, Tuesday, 1st January, 1901 There was never any doubt both Arthur and Marco loved Mary Gibbs and would do anything to make her happy. So when they came into the hotel on the 1st of January and saw her with tears in her eyes, they were falling over each other to see what they could do to bring back her smile. Mary had lovely green eyes, and to see them moist with tears was very distressing for the two young lads. Mary's eyes were always vibrant, flashing with gaiety and mischief. But not on this searing hot Tuesday morning. The first day of 1901, and a declared holiday for New Year's Day. 
and this day was even more auspicious. It was the very first day of Federation, and Western Australia had finally decided to join with the other states in forming this new Australian nation. So Mary had really every reason to be cheerful. When Arthur and Marco burst in, Mary Gibbs was seated uncomfortably with her chin in her hands and crater lines of distress scrunching up her lovely face. The girl was perched on a red chaise lounge in the Forest Inn, located in the timber settlement of Canning Mills, set deep in the lush Jarrah Forest-covered hills rising above Perth. The inn was closed for the holiday, and would not open till the evening. Even then its trading was restricted to meals only. Mary, the daughter of the Forest Inn's proprietor, should have been completing her daily chore of cleaning the lounge, so she could be free to go off with her young mates. The eleven-year-old had decided today, with the temperature soaring into the high nineties, the trio would go swimming down at the pool on Monday's brook. But something had gone very wrong. Mary was on the couch crying, and the lounge had not been cleaned. Ashtrays were full, discarded plates and old newspapers were still spread over the tables, and the well-trodden floorboards were strewn with rubbish that should have been swept up and out of sight by now. The table in front of Mary displayed a small mound of valuables, a fob-watch, cufflinks, and a fancy monogram tobacco tin with the flowery initials L.W. on the front. These initials were recognised across the timber settlement as belonging to Mr. Lionel White, manager of the Canning Mills Timber Company, and the most influential and richest man in this small township. Arthur Bellamy and Marco Cirini were both only eight years old and were still relatively unskilled in understanding the complexities of adult status, but even they knew to whom these items belonged, and they knew Mr. White was the big boss and should not be crossed. "'What is it, Mary? What's wrong?' shouted Arthur in his high-pitched voice. His tone was even higher than normal. The woman he idolised was seated before him in a state of absolute despair, and he was very concerned. The young boy had just achieved a proud milestone. He was now over four foot tall, but his body was still skinny. Arthur had dark, straight hair, hazel eyes, and a strong, angular face which lit up when he smiled, but there was no evidence of happiness today. Arthur raced across the ornate room towards Mary. The lounge was still shrouded with the pretense of darkness that heavy drapes confer on a confined space. The room was decorated with fake gilt ornaments, and an excess of daylight would have revealed these decorations as cheap imitations of grandeur. This room was built for night-time, when carefully placed gaslights would sparkle and glint in a profusion of jeweled stars. A large Persian rug covered much of the floor, completing the illusion. The room screamed of opulence. Marco Cirini followed Arthur, trailing him by only one excited step. "'Why are you crying, Mary? Is it... has someone hurt you?' he asked. His voice was strongly accented, a melodious tenor sound which seemed a contradiction in someone so young. Marco was much taller than Arthur, and already showed the wide shoulders and barrel chest that would one day fill out with wads of muscle. Marco would be the image of his father, a timber fellow whose great strength and endurance had brought him renown across the Canning Mills community. The Cirinis had emigrated from northern Italy, their hometown in the Alps sharing a border with both France and Switzerland. But Marco did not have the dark Latin colouring that the Canning Mills locals thought of as typically Italian. He had a shock of curly blonde hair with strong light blue eyes, and this was all contained in a totally charming face. 
Mary looked up at her saviours as they burst in, like little willy-willies, scattering the papers and disturbing the mess last night's revellers had left behind after their midnight antics. "'Arthur and Marco, I am so glad you're here. I'm in real trouble. I hope you can save me.' Mary gasped through her tears. Further words were lost as she wheezed heavily and struggled for control, consumed by anxiety-induced asthma. The boys were not too worried by Mary's asthma. They often witnessed her fighting for breath. No, it was her words which disturbed her young admirers. Mary was never in doubt about what to do next. She always had a plan to extricate herself from trouble. Mary Gibbs was the most capable and self-assured young woman in the whole community, and many across the settlement thought she showed great promise. But her statement also brought a sense of pride to the young lads. Mary was absolutely desirable, and they were both infatuated. Mary Elizabeth Gibbs, usually totally capable and competent, had indicated she was glad to be saved by Arthur and Marco. The boys were still only in junior school, hardly old enough to be considered her knights in shining armour, and they were truly chuffed. "'What's the problem, Mary? I'm sure we can work out how we can get through it,' Arthur responded reasonably. He was determined to have a wise head on his little scrawny body, this was his chance to show Mary he was worthy of her affection. "'Thanks, Arthur. I'm in big trouble,' Mary said, her glistening eyes taking in both boys. "'So, tell us all about it,' invited Marco, ready for the challenge. "'I'm sure we can fix things.' Mary took a deep, strained gasp before starting her tale. "'Last night my dad was entertaining some of the Canning Mills hoi polloi, at our New Year's Eve celebration. They were all pretty drunk, and Dad hit it as hard as the rest of them. He's still in bed, she wheezed. He called me in this morning and told me to clean the room and be really careful of Mr. White's valuables. Mary, with tears in her eyes and a raspy breath, went on with her yarn. After singing Old Lang Syne, they all decided to have a, an arm-wrestling competition. Cookie told me they all joined in, even Mr. White. But he was all dressed up in formal clothes because he'd been out to dinner. So he took off his valuables and left them with Dad behind the bar. Now, he must have been a bit drunk too because he totted off home without them. Mary took in a large laboured breath, but telling the story was giving her courage. I came in to clean up and I did the bar first, just like I always do. I found Mr. White's special things and brought them out to the light to look at them up close. Those cufflinks are solid gold and the blue stones are sapphires. They're really valuable. I lifted up his gold wedding ring and I tried it on my thumb. I wanted to see if it had writing on the inside. I thought it would say something really sloppy like to my lovely husband forever or in Lionel White I found my Mr. Wright. "'so I took it over to the gap in the curtains to see it better.' Marco and Arthur looked over at the slit where daylight was streaming into the room. "'Then I heard someone coming and I dropped the ring. "'It rolled to the back of the room, over there, where the floor slopes downwards.' "'Mary pointed to the back of the room, which certainly showed a distinct slump at the far corner. "'I heard it rolling, then the sound stopped, then the ring disappeared, just vanished.' One minute I heard it wobbling across the floor, and then nothing. 
It must have gone down the space between the floorboards. The boys moved over to the area where Mary was pointing. At the edge of the room there was no carpet and the jarrah boards showed large gaps. These were a boon when sweeping the floor. Mess could just be pushed straight through. It looked like this was the fate of Mr. White's ring, doomed to exist for all time amongst the waste and debris from the Forest Inn lounge. Marco lay down and peered through the slit. Nope, I can't see anything, he muttered with disappointment. In the filtered light he had seen dusty lumps and bumps rising from the murk, but no glint of gold. We need to find it. Dad will be really angry and he'll take the strap to me, and if Mr. White calls in the police we could all get into serious strife. They'll accuse Dad of stealing it and he could lose the lease of the inn. Perhaps he'll even go to prison, and then our family will be ruined. They all know it was here when I came in, so I'll get the blame, that's for sure. Cookie saw it this morning, and he told me to keep away from the stuff. I'm going to get it for certain if I don't get it back. Mary gasped, her breaths again becoming wheezy as panic resurfaced. Tears flooded into her eyes as she imagined the dire consequences of failure. What do you reckon? "'Can we rip up the floorboards?' Marco asked, deferring to his friend Arthur, as though they were adults discussing a building plan. "'Nah, I don't think so. Look here, the nails are banged in too far, and there are no heads on them,' said Arthur. His dad was a carpenter by trade, and Arthur spent a lot of time with Joseph Bellamy in his shed out the back where residents of the township would come to look over his well-crafted furniture, rare in a location where rough-and-ready items were the norm— Working with wood was a passion for Arthur's dad, who spent most of his daylight hours as the saw doctor for the company, sharpening and mending the many saws across the mill town. The love of working a piece of rough jarrah into a crafted piece of quality furniture had rubbed off onto young Arthur, who spent many hours watching his beloved father at work. And in this environment, Arthur had picked up the jargon. The only way would be to get an axe to the boards. Marco's dad could have this bit of floor up in a few hours, and my dad could fit new ones. The only problem is we don't really know how many will have to come up, because we don't know where the ring is. It could cost a bit, too. So, shall we do this, Mary? Arthur was only young, but he really felt this could work. He was proud of his response. He thought it sounded grown-up and very knowledgeable. Marco was taken in by Arthur's intelligent answer. Both our dads are home today, because it's holiday. Shall I go and get Papa, Mary? Asked Marco, keen to get his Mary smiling again. Marco's Papa would happily help. Mary shook her head vigorously, making her burnished copper curls jump and then flop haphazardly. No, wait, said Mary. There's another way. If we have to do it your way, I'll still get a thrashing, because Dad told me not to muck around with Mr. White stuff, and I did. You know what he's like. This needed no further explanation. The two boys knew Mr. Frank Gibbs was a violent pig. He treated Mary and his family like animals, taking his fists to them any time he was angry, drunk, or just in a bad mood. Marco and Arthur could not understand this behaviour, they both had wonderful fathers, and violence was not part of their childhood. 
Many times they had turned their heads away in disgust when Mary had shown them a black bruise or a livid welt caused by the evil bully, Frank Gibbs. Mary's mother, Nellie Gibbs, was cowed, her spirit broken. She passively obeyed him, and these days she rarely met with any violence. Nellie no longer asked questions about his philandering or his gambling. She read the signs when he was angry, and she responded with meekness, always playing the subdued wife. The other three Gibbs daughters were much younger than Mary. Usually they escaped his anger, protected by their wily and ever-aware mother and the sympathetic staff of the Forest Inn. Their protection was well placed. Unbeknownst to Mary, three miscarriages between Mary's birth and the successful delivery of Violet three years ago had all occurred after Frank had grown angry with Nellie. He felt it was his right to give her a necessary wife-taming session, and had actually bragged about this to his mates in the public bar. These days it was Mary who provoked Frank Gibbs. She answered back and was cheeky, but his blows had not yet curbed her spirit. Mary hated him and everything he represented, but she was wary. If she could avoid his tirades, she did. With this background, Mary was keen to avoid admitting to her father she had defied his instructions and lost the valuable gold ring. Frank Gibbs was a bully to his wife and family, but this was a private family matter. To the outside world, he was a respectable businessman. He kowtowed to the rich and famous, and to Lionel White most of all. Frank was inordinately proud that the manager of the Canning Mills Timber Company seemed to value his opinions, and Frank counted him as a friend. Mary knew her dad's fury would be explosive if this was put at risk. So it was not surprising Mary had other thoughts. She brightened considerably as she outlined her plan to the two boys. I've thought of a way around this. I think one of you can climb down through the manhole and wriggle under the floor to the spot, find the ring and bring it back. Then everything will be all right. Mary moved over to the bar area, and Marco and Arthur followed meekly behind. The girl was once again in control. Her voice had returned to normal. Her breathing was steady and easy. Here's the manhole. It's a trapdoor hidden behind the bar. Sometimes when we have lots of rubbish, we lift it up and throw things down. It's easier than taking it out to the rubbish pile at the back. The two boys peered down as Mary lifted up the wooden frame. Now, I cannot go down there because I'm a girl, and this would obviously not do. But I think you two could manage it. Will you do it for me? Please? Marco and Arthur were not too impressed with Mary's plan, but this turned to absolute unmitigated horror as they looked into the inky pit. The manhole was the entrance to all manner of unspeakable terrors. The space below the trapdoor was only about three foot high from dirt to floorboards, far too low for even an eight-year-old to stand upright, even if he was buckled over. The lucky person, selected for this valiant deed, would need to slither along on his belly. But Arthur and Marco desperately wanted to help Mary, but the very thought of this quest made them shiver with fright. The billowing smell coming up from underneath was thick and cloying, damp, disturbed dirt mixed with rot and mould. This was all overwhelmed with the unmistakable pong of dead rats. Mary went on. I think Marco's too big for this. He might get stuck. The gap gets narrower near the back. 
Marco was soon to be nine, but he was already the tallest and largest in his class. The Italian breathed a bit more easily now. He understood he was not the chosen one. Arthur quailed. It was to be him. So you'll have to do it, Arthur. We'll open the curtain so you'll not be in complete darkness, Mary said. Noticing the frightened look on his face, she begged, Please do it for me, Arthur, or Dad will get the strap out. Arthur was petrified. He really wanted to help Mary and certainly didn't want her to be thrashed, but neither did he want to go under the floor to recover the ring. He had a deep fear of closed-in spaces. A few months back he'd been too scared to go into the cave near the Victoria Reservoir. His big brother Thomas had told him two Aboriginals had been murdered there and their ghosts lived in the cave, and he sure didn't want to run into any angry ghosts. That day Thomas and his friends had been brutal to him. They'd called him a sissy and laughed at him, but nothing would induce him to go down into that black cavern. He'd had nightmares about the Aboriginal ghosts ever since. He thought they were lurking under his bed or in his cupboard. He wasn't about to admit it to Mary or Marco, but he still asked his mum to leave the kerosene lantern on when he went to sleep. He was still afraid of the dark and was certainly not ready to be this brave. Now Mary wanted him to go into this creepy space alone. This black, sinister area below the floor looked like the perfect spot for some lurking angry ghosts. "'I don't think I can do it, Mary. I won't fit.' "'What happens if I get stuck down there?' Arthur's voice came out as a strangled squawk. Dread and worry caused his heart to race, and sweat beads formed on his brow. His hair was plastered to his scalp, and panic was rising. A big lava bubble of bile had formed in his gut. "'You have to give it a go, Arthur. Please, I beg you. I will be in your debt forever if you can find it. Don't worry. If you get stuck, we will come down and pull your feet back.' Mary looked at him, pleading. Her beautiful eyes were filled with request, her face full of desperate need. With her auburn hair, stunning eyes, and flawless skin, she was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen. "'All right, Mary. I'll do it for you. I'll have a go,' Arthur said chivalrously, and instantly regretted the words. But this regret was magnified one hundredfold when, ten minutes later, they had lowered him into the pitch-black hole. He shut his eyes and prayed. Arthur tentatively moved into a crouch. In this section of the room, crawling would be possible. His eyes readjusted to the gloom. He looked around frantically. Mary opened the drapes, and filtered light sliced into thin lines gave a faint glow to the area under the floor, which was not covered by the Persian rug. This rug-covered expanse formed a dark, malignant shadow, and Arthur was determined not to go anywhere near the middle of the room. The illumination from the open trapdoor behind him also gave faint, filtered light. Unfortunately, this light also created menacing shadows, which looked exactly like the ghostly manifestations of evil aboriginal spirits. The area around the trapdoor was packed with discarded bottles, broken crockery, and even the desiccated carcasses of vermin thrown haphazardly into the recess. As he looked around, he could see spiderwebs everywhere. Arthur hated spiders. Arthur started his slow crawl towards the back southern corner of the room. He felt the creepy trails of spiderwebs brushing over his skin. The back of Arthur's shirt caught on a nail protruding from a floorboard, and the sound of ripping fabric brought him even more dismay. His mum would kill him. 
Suddenly Arthur froze. Something large and hairy was crawling inside the collar of his shirt. He could not reach it, so he had to endure the feel of it crawling mercilessly down his back with slow, feathery, scary monotony. Arthur's back muscles tensed as he awaited the poisonous sting that would end his miserable ordeal. Mary's muffled voice came through from above. She had been encouraging him while monitoring his progress as he shuffled slowly beneath the floor. When he stopped, she spoke in a concerned voice. "'What is it, Arthur? Why have you stopped?' "'I'm really scared, Mary. There's a big spider, and it's creeping down my back inside my shirt,' croaked Arthur, terror constricting his voice. His whole body was rigid with fright. "'Loosen your shirt at the bottom. Give it somewhere to escape. Just keep on going, please, Arthur,' coaxed Mary, her muffled voice drenched with reassurance. Her need for Arthur to achieve his hazardous quest, despite the odds and his own personal discomfort, was a powerful motivator. Arthur did as she said, and the ghastly feel of the insect crawling over his skin stopped. Arthur willed himself to keep going. Marco was standing above the area where they thought the ring had fallen down, thumping a broom handle on the floor. His regular hammering sent down little sprays of dust, spiralling in the faint slivers of light. This gave poor, interred Arthur a clear sense of direction. As he moved closer to the vibrations, Arthur was forced to slither on his belly as the space reduced. With barely two feet to manoeuvre his flattened body, he felt the horrible panic that comes with claustrophobia. He had never imagined being buried alive before, and now feared he would never escape from his tomb. "'You're in the right spot now, Arthur,' came Mary's excited voice lending hope to the frightened boy. Start looking around very carefully. It should be right on top, so don't disturb the dirt too much or you'll never find it. Arthur looked into the dull murk. At least it seemed far lighter over this side of the room. His eyes darted left and right. Furtively he reached out towards a shiny item, and to his immense surprise his little hand clasped onto a round shape with a hole in the centre, the unmistakable feel of a gold ring. "'I've got it, Mary!' Arthur gasped incredulously. He felt a surge of victory, which almost overcame his anxiety. "'He's got it! He's got it!' came the joyous sing-song voice of Marco. "'Oh, Arthur, I love you so much! You've saved my life!' purred Mary, her beautiful voice tinged with gratitude. "'Now, we need you to get out of there!' "'Can you turn around?' yelled Marco, his mouth pressed against the gap in the floorboards. He had been steadfast in supporting his young friend and was providing him with reassurance and inspiration. The incentive to find the ring had driven Arthur this far, and now he needed encouragement from both his friends to get back. But Arthur was stuck, wedged in one direction. He could not turn around. The only solution would be a painful and terrifying slide backwards on his belly, and then the long crawl to the trapdoor, back into the darkness, towards the lurking, lingering ghosts. Plus, the problem with going backwards is he would not see any of the dangers, the dead things, the spiders, the ghosts, and then he recalled that snakes lived under buildings. If he was going backwards, he would not see a snake if it crawled up his trousers. Deadly dugites, silent death adders, painful strangulation by a carpet python. He would be dead in a moment. 
Arthur was immobilized with terror. I can't go back. I can't turn around or move. I'm stuck down here. Help me, please, Arthur begged. The young boy started weeping. The terror of his predicament had caught up with him. He wanted his mum. Look, Arthur, you'll be all right. You've been really brave, and it's the only way out. You've already done it once, so you can do it again, crooned Mary. Her relief at having saved herself from a bad situation was gone. Now she realized she had sent an eight-year-old boy on a mission that was far too much for him. Just rest for a while until you get some confidence back. Can you see much down there? coaxed Mary, her soothing voice calming his fears. Arthur was still quietly sobbing, but he gradually opened his eyes and suddenly looked around, appraising his situation. Through watery eyes, he suddenly realized the light which flooded the area was not from the gaps in the floorboards or from the trapdoor behind. It was coming from an area about three feet in front of him. As he focused, he could see a steady source of light at least a foot wide. This light was not bright sunlight, but it was a beacon of escape from this dark, cramped hellhole, and it was worth a try. Better than going twenty feet in reverse. Mary, I'm not going back the way I came. There's light up ahead, and I'm going out that way. There must be some broken boards there. I'm going to wiggle out through the gap. You'll come out in old Melonhead's chook house, exclaimed Marco. Yes, that'll be right, agreed Mary. The Mellow's chook house leans against the back of the pub, and Dad is always going off about the smell of the chook poo. This is a great idea. Chooks will be less scary than spiders, said the lovely Mary. But please, Arthur, hold on tightly to that ring. So Arthur wriggled on. The space didn't decrease, and sure enough, when he got to the light source, he could hear the reassuring sound of scratching chickens and the pluck, pluck of a broody hen sitting on her eggs. The gap in front of him was narrow. One section of board had succumbed to white ants, leaving a space three feet wide but only a foot high. The hole would be big enough, just, but it would require a lot of wriggling. I'm here. It looks like I can get through. Can you meet me in the chook pen when I get out? requested Arthur. He was a bit worried about old Melonhead, Acca, Mr. Mellor. He was the teacher for the older grades at school and was so named because he had a large bulbous head the big boys thought looked like a pumpkin. He lived with his spinster sister, termed by all Mrs. Melonhead, although she was not married. Thomas said she was far too ugly to ever have found a husband. The Mellors were not pleasant folk, and old Melonhead would not take too kindly to a boy trespassing in his chook house. We'll be there as soon as we can. We'll need to go right around, though. There's no shortcut. Let's hope they're not home, said Marco. Mary joined in with an alibi. I'll pretend I've lost my rabbit. That should be a good enough yarn for them to let us in. "'Just wait till I'm through the gap first, please,' pleaded Arthur, still needing the reassurance of his friends. He was certain that sitting and waiting a while for a rescue in a chook pen would be infinitely better than spending another minute in this chilling crypt. Arthur pushed onward and thumped at the boards. 
They were rotten. Termites had feasted on the old timber, and it splintered easily. After some writhing and squirming, his head and shoulders were through. His eyes desperately blinked away the unpleasant sensation of chicken manure falling on his face. The entrapped boy struggled to release one hand, and this he placed down on the ground, squelching right into many months of chook-poo. This hand contained the rescued ring, and Arthur grinned when he thought of Mr. White's wedding ring covered in gunk. Arthur could hear the clucking of the hens, but thankfully none of them decided to peck at his head. Arthur then realized his bottom half was wedged, his trouser belt was stuck, and he used his free hand to reach down to loosen the buckle. Escape without trousers would be all right. He could always reach back and recover them after he'd escaped. Suddenly he felt a sinister shadow above him. Firm hands gripped his shoulders, then gently and determinedly lifted his limp body from his incarceration, leaving his pants behind. Arthur looked up to see his saviour, and as his eyes focused he screamed a spine-chilling horror scream. Arthur's worst nightmare had come true. He was face to face with the ghost of a murdered Aboriginal.' 